Well, Merry Christmas. You can go ahead and be seated. And man, it's good to see you here today. If you are new with us to Crossroads Church, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, we're grateful that you've chosen this hour to spend with us as we worship together and celebrate uh, this Christmas season. Uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and Christmas is just 22 days away. Can you believe it? Yeah. The uh, kind of the official start of Christmas, or at least for our community, started yesterday with the Parade of Lights. Anybody make it to the Parade of Lights? I know a few of you were in it. Yeah. I love the, the lights and just the downtown lighting displays <clears throat> this time of year, particularly because I don't have to set them up or tear them down. <laughs> when it comes to the lights, but more so than that, it is, they're just beautiful. Some of those lighting displays, like one of my favorite times during the season is to go downtown and to visit Union Station. Just the way that it's lit up. Almost every year I go down there and I take a picture. This is from last year. And there's just something so awe-inspiring about all the lights and the way that the buildings are, are lit up this time of year. And whether you're a believer or not, um, the reality is, is this year is about light, isn't it? That this, this season is all about Lights, uh, lights on trees, candles in windows, you know, millions upon millions of twinkling lights wrapping cities all around the world. And interestingly, when it comes to us as believers, that those millions and millions of lights for us are significant. It's just not festive, they're symbolic. That those millions of lights that wrap our city represent kind of the pillars of Advent, of hope and peace, joy and love. And so as a church, this Advent season, this special season that we call Advent, what we've decided to do is actually walk through this season, reminding ourselves of the significance of light during this time of year. And as we walk through this, to realize that we are on this march kind of week by week as we head towards this grand celebration on Christmas Eve where we celebrate God's light, Jesus, the Son of God, entering into this world. It was a birth that changed everything. It was, it was foretold by generations and by prophets upon prophets and eventually finding its fulfillment in that stable in that little town of Bethlehem. And last week, as we began to prepare our hearts for this season of Advent, we said that Advent always begins in the dark. And if you were here last week with us, it was a bit of a reckoning for our souls to realize that we live in a dark world. And then emphatically, that first Christmas, all was not calm and all was not bright. In fact, the world that that first Christmas happened in was a world full of violence and injustice, homelessness, oppression, families being ripped apart, bottomless grief, abuse of power, all words that we could use to describe our world as we head into Christmas. And as we closed last week, we reminded ourselves of the message of Christianity. And that message is that things are really bad, that things are like really bad. And we can't heal ourselves, we can't save ourselves, that we live in a dark world, but nevertheless, nevertheless, there's hope. Because by the tender mercy of our God, those who are sitting in darkness, who dwell in the shadow of death, that light has dawned. And because that light has dawned, we can walk in ways of peace. See, the message of Christmas that every single one of us needs is that in a land dwelling in deep darkness, the light has dawned. And it's that dawning light of scripture as to why our entire world is wrapped in millions and millions of twinkling 
lights. And that's what we want to talk about today. And so if you have your Bible, I want to uh, invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Every week we put the words on the screen so that you can follow along. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, we would love to give you one. This church is an exceedingly generous church. And through this Christmas season, we've bought really nice Bibles so that anybody who doesn't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. All you have to do when you leave today is stop by the Welcome Center. We'll hand you one and it's our gift to you this Christmas. Of all of the famous passages that we read in Advent, Isaiah chapter 9 is probably the most famous of them all. It's a prophecy that was given 700 years before the birth of Christ, where Isaiah writes these words, starting in verse 2. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has dawned. When Isaiah pens these words that there are people who are walking in darkness, dwelling in a land of deep darkness, it is hard to overstate how dark the world actually was. The darkness, the, the evil that surrounded the world was, was palpable. That physically speaking, the world was a world at war, completely in, you know, engulfed in unrest, that peace was at best a fleeting thought, a fleeting idea. Spiritually speaking, who this prophecy is given to is the Jewish people, a rebellious people who had turned from a God who had been faithful throughout the generations, who had delivered them more times than they could count, who had, who had rescued them from their enemies, who had time and time again shown himself to be faithful, that they walked away, turned their hearts from that God to chase the little g-gods of money, sex, and power that led them into deep, deep, deep spiritual darkness in their lives. That when Isaiah writes these words, that to a people who are walked, who have walked in darkness, understand just how evil the days are, how palpable the evil was during this time. And right in the middle of that pitch black, a prophecy is given that was so bright, so ablaze with hope, that millions upon millions of people read these scriptures around the globe thousands of years later. Isaiah says, in the deep darkness, light has dawned. And using the imagery of the sun, that is the S-U-N sun, he invites us to think more deeply about what God is up to. He invites us into deeper understanding of how God is working in this world and in the midst of humanity. That for every single one of us, we know that when it comes to the natural order, that we are absolutely dependent upon the sun. We are dependent for it in its illumination for us to be able to, to see and have light in this world. That all the way back in the creation account, we are told that we are intricately woven together. That, that in the creation, that we have a creator who has, who has sculpted us together. And in our, in our divine sculpting, that we have been given these amazing things called eyes. That still to this day, science marvels at their design. But the one thing that our eyes need in order to be able to see is light. That our eyes need light in order to know where we're at and to know where we are going. All the way back in 2009, uh, I visited Israel for the first time as someone who was touring the Holy Land. 
And while I was there, I was there with a whole group of people, but a couple of guys, two other guys and I, decided that we were going to do Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Hezekiah's Tunnel, it's a pretty neat story. In 700 BC, King Hezekiah, as the city of Jerusalem was about to be attacked by the Syrians, the Syrians had this idea that, hey, how about we fortify the city by creating this tunnel system that brings the water that was outside the walls into the walls? It was a brilliant idea, and it's even more crazy to think about that these guys started at two opposite ends and somehow ended in the middle, all right? Today, today, you can sludge through that tunnel. It's about a half mile long, kind of filled with water, and you can hike your way through that. And so me and these two other guys decide, you know what? We're going to do Hezekiah's Tunnel. And so we kind of entered into where you go, and you descend down into the bedrock, what feels like forever, like you're heading to the middle of the earth. And then finally, you get to the tunnel's entrance, and we delve into the tunnel's entrance, and it was dark. I mean, we had our flashlights, and we're kind of cruising through the darkness. And about after five or ten minutes, there was this group that was behind us somewhere in the darkness, and we knew they were behind us because there was a couple of ladies in that group who were absolutely freaking out. Now, to their credit, it's totally dark. You can't really see where you're going. The walls are pretty tight. I mean, it's a, it's a situation that can be pretty fearful. And so being good Christian guys that we were, we added to those ladies' experiences by making ghoulish noises throughout the entire tunnel, right? <coughs> well, about halfway through uh, our, you know, tunnel walk here, we decided, hey, you know what would be a really cool thing to do? Turn off the lights, and so for a moment, we turned off our flashlights, and our flashlights were only off for maybe 20, 30 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. Like, it didn't take very long for the darkness just to completely overwhelm us. I mean, I could not see my hand in front of my face. That's how dark it was in the tunnel. And pretty quickly, fear began to, like, root itself into us. We didn't know where we were at. We kind of lost perspective on where it was that we were going. And as soon as we turned on the lights, we were like, we got to get out of here. Like, you know, all of a sudden, those artificial lights, they weren't so secure anymore. We needed to get into the sun. And so we hightailed it, probably in record speed, out of that tunnel. And as we entered the pool into the sunlight, all of a sudden, peace began to come over us because we could see the sun had, had illuminated. We were no longer in the dark that we could see clearly. It, it shows us, right? The sun shows us where we're at and, and the ways that we're to go. And Isaiah, using this imagery of the sun, takes us deeper in helping us understand what God is doing in this world and humanity. And he says at one level, the only reason that we can know anything is because God has revealed it to us, that he has illuminated the truth for us so that we know where we're at, so we can see where we're going. But we know that when it comes to the natural order of things, that the sun doesn't just illuminate, does it? It also provides life, that the sun is the source of all life. At a very basic level, every single one of us, we eat plants that eat lights. Or if you're like me, let's be truthful, you eat animals that eat plants that eat light, right? I mean, that's, that's the way where it's at. The sun is the source of life. Without it, we would starve. Without its warmth, we would, we would freeze. That when the Bible talks about God as light, what it's meaning to convey to us is that only in God do we live. And only in God do we move and have our being. That we exist because he is upholding us at every moment of our life. 
And so when the Bible uses this imagery of light and darkness, what it's saying to us is that when there is darkness, there is no life. In darkness, there is no truth. That there's no life, there's no truth. We, we don't know where we're at. We don't know where we're going. We can't experience, we can't experience being when we are in the dark. And the hard reality for us who, who live in a world of artificial lights is that there is nothing that we can do to provide that kind of light that brings truth and life into our lives. As much as culture would like to argue that we can bring truth on our own, that we can bring life on our own, the reality is, is that without life, all is dark. And so the question is, is how do we, how do we get it? How do we expose ourselves to the kind of light that brings life and truth? How do we experience the dawning of the light of God? Well, Isaiah tells us, he tells us in verse 6, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, don't worry, I know it, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How do we experience the dawning lights of God in this world? Isaiah says that we will experience through a child who brings it. See, the reality is that Isaiah could not tell us the time of the arrival or even know the place. Far less specific was the identity of the coming Messiah. But according to the Gospel of John, Isaiah could see the glory of the childs. And this description that we have in Isaiah chapter 9 is a glorious description of him. That he is the light, that he is the truth and the life because he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These titles given to this child who through the rest of scripture are only titles ever given to God and God alone. That these marvelous words in Isaiah chapter 9 serve as a sort of royal birth announcement to the life and truth that has dawned in this world. Isaiah says that this child is truth in life because he is a wonderful counselor. Now, when it comes to this Hebrew word here, what it means is one who advises, instructs, who guides us from a place of authority. It's way more than, you know, a therapist, kind of the way that we think of counselors in our nomenclature. That what's being said here is that, is that it means someone who has experience to understand the situation, the wisdom to work out the solution, and the authority or the power to enact it. In other words, this is huge. That if God really did come through the manger, like the Bible claims, then we have something that every other major religion can't claim to have. And that is a God who truly understands you. It's a God who truly understands me. A God who knows what it's like to walk through the darkness of this world. The path of pain, God says, I've, I've endured it. Loneliness in this world, I know it's temptation, I've been there. Betrayal, loss, heartache, I've walked all of those roads and I can guide you through them. The title of wonderful counselor is like God saying, don't worry, I got this, we'll do it together. 
It's a truth that reverberates through history where hundreds of years later, the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter four writes these words. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Come on, yet he is without sin. And because you have this wonderful counselor, look at the promise, verse 16. Then let us then come with confidence, drawing near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That you have a God If the claims of Scripture are true, you have a God who understands you, who has walked through the darkness of this world and says, come on, follow me. We'll make it through together. Not only is this child a wonderful counselor, but we're told that he is also mighty God. Now, let me just state the obvious here that this child is of divine origin, that this is a divine person. In our day, there's an argument being made that Isaiah's language here is better translated a godlike hero, which is okay, except for in chapter 10, that this very title is named of God himself in chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 10. The divine child is not godlike, he is the hero God. This is divinity acting in heroic ways. The theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says he is the divine voyager who in the incarnation traverses the vast gulf between eternity and time on his mission of salvation. He is the divine warrior who is attacked as an infant by Herod, that vile instrument of Satan, but who then enters the lists against his enemy in the wilderness and defeats him. He is the divine healer who conquers blindness, lameness, deafness, and dumbness. He is the divine life giver whose voice the dead hear and live. He is the divine lover who shows love to the loveless, the unlovely, and the unlovable. He is the divine self-sacrificer who offers himself on the cross for our sakes. He is the divine general who leads a host of captives as he ascends in his triumph and who in the sheer generosity of his grace now shares the spoil of his victories with his people. This is Christ, the mighty God the mighty God hero. Not only do we see him, this child, as a wonderful counselor and a mighty God, but the third title given to him is everlasting father. Father. That's a word that elicits all kinds of different responses, doesn't it? For some, when you hear that word father, it it warms your soul like a sip of whiskey on a cold winter night. For others of you, for others of you, when you hear the word father, it brings about emotions that are complicated and painful, doesn't it? For some of you, the the word father brings about a sadness in your life, knowing that he is no longer here with you. That all of this and so much more is, is why the word father elicits such responses in our life. See, if the word father brings a smile to your face, then you know that that your dad gave you a glimpse of what it means for this child to be your everlasting father. But only a glimpse as if viewing through glasses dimly lit because even the best earthly father is just an echo of the way that God loves us. And if the word father makes you crinkle your face in pain and disgust, 
then you need to know that the promised child, what is promised with this child, is the kind of relationship that you need. And unfortunately, in this dark world, you never had the opportunity to have. And even the most disappointing earthly father can be a constant reminder to you that there is someone who will never leave you, who will never fail you, who will never disappoint you. And if that word father made you sad because your father is, is no longer here, that Christmas has a way of, of amplifying the losses that we experience in life, doesn't it? That if that word father makes you sad because your father is no longer here, it's a reminder to us that even the great fathers and the ones who weren't, that all earthly fathers die, that they won't be around forever. And maybe as you look around the table, that truth and that reality will be painfully, you will be painfully aware of that. See, the promised child of Isaiah 9, he doesn't leave. He won't disappoint you. He doesn't hurt you. He doesn't fail you. He won't, he won't die. He is eternal. And he loves you the way that you need to be loved. I mean, just listen to these words out of Zephaniah. It says that the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. This Christmas, for some of us here, it may be especially important for you to grasp that truth. That this promised child is the everlasting father. That some of you need to be able to, for your lives to be illuminated in order for you to, to see and grab a hold of that truth so that you know where you're at, where you're going, so that you can walk in ways of life. The final title given to this child is that he will be the Prince of Peace. That this is probably the most famous of the four titles given to this child. I mean, it's, these, it's this title that was repeated by the angels as they chanted in Luke 2, uh, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to all men. It's this title that we sing about. It's in all of our favorite songs, from Away in a Manger to Hark the Herald's Angels Sing to Little Town of Bethlehem to our most favorite of all songs during this time, Silent Nights. All of it speaking to, pointing to this child being the Prince of Peace. However, if we were honest, this is the one title that also seems to fail to deliver, doesn't it? that we cannot escape the reality that we still live in a dark world where guns still fire and relational strife still causes riots in the street, domestic abuse still tearing apart families, poverty still affecting millions upon millions, injustice is still a daily experience for so many. Prince of Peace, peace on earth. I mean, was it too big of a task? Was it too hard to accomplish? I want to suggest to you that the lack of peace that we experience in this world is just a symptom of a larger problem. And that is that the world is not at peace with God. In other words, 
We do not see the peace of God in this world horizontally because the world is not at peace with God vertically. And this is actually a bigger problem than most of us realize. See, the truth of the matter is, is that each of us in our own ways have pursued a life of conflict with God. That we don't want him to be in charge. We don't want him to tell us what to do. We don't want him to get the glory. Those are things that I want. I want to be in charge. I want to, I want to, I want to be independent in my life. I want to define good and bad, right and wrong in this world for myself. I want all of the glory. Those are the things that I want. And the life, or the Bible says that that kind of lifestyle is what we call a lifestyle of sin. And it's the sin of our lives of what creates the darkness in this world. See, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when humanity falls in sin, what happens thereafter is that humanity is constantly redefining right and wrong, uh, good and bad, in terms of its, of its own sense and doing so for its own advantage. That from the point of Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into the world, humanity is constantly redefining good and evil for our own advantage at the expense of others. And so when we read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, we see this happening time and time again, not just like in the personal or within family, but entire civilizations where those who are in power are constantly redefining good and evil for their advantage and oftentimes to the expense of the most vulnerable. See, we do not experience peace because of our sin. That in our sin, we, we cannot experience the love and acceptance of God to live at peace with God and therefore at peace with the people of this world. That's why we lack peace. And so how do we experience that? How do we get some sense of peace that is promised to us in this famous Advent scripture? Well, in a word, it's forgiveness. And that's what makes this child so special. It's what this title, Prince of Peace, is, is pointing to, that in a dark world, in a dark world of rebellion against God, a child was sent. And he lives the most unusual of all lives. I mean, he was born into poverty. So impoverished, impoverished was his family that when he was dedicated at the temple, he brought, he was, he brought the family brought, his parents brought the lowest of lows when it came to sacrificial offerings. That he was born into a life of poverty, not of power and prestige like maybe we would assume from a divine child. That in his life, he didn't rule from a throne, but rather walked among the oppressed. At the end of his life, he didn't die a hero's death, but rather a criminal's, even though no one could exactly say what it is that he had done. We read the story and we look at it and we go, man, what a tragic life. And from the outside looking in, it does. It, it looks absolutely tragic. But from the inside out, we begin to see that not, this wasn't a tragic life. This was, this was a God-planned life, that this was a foretold life. In Isaiah chapter 53, in what we call the suffering servant passage, here's what Isaiah writes about this promised child. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's what we see, tragedy. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed. That's the purpose. See, because you are so greatly loved, rejoiced, sung over by an everlasting father, heroics were done on your behalf by a mighty, mighty God. So that as you walk through this life, that you have a God who understands you, who knows you, who knows what it looks like to walk through a dark world as a wise and wonderful counselor. And in his death, you can experience peace with God. Illumination. Truth. Life. All right there. See, for we know... And when it comes to this season of Christmas, that one of the big things that we do is we give gifts. And I want you to notice why it is that we actually do that. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, I want you to notice that not only does it say, for to us a child is born, but also to us a son is given. See, Christmas is about a gift. The son was given as a gift, that Jesus is the gift born to bring light. And so is it any wonder that in the days leading up to the cross, that as Jesus is hanging out with his best buds, his disciples, he looks at them and he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I am the light. And if you follow my path, then you will come to the Father. What an incredible gift. See, the gift of Jesus can only be yours if you're willing to receive it as a gift of grace. The very fact that we celebrate Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of God's Son himself could save us. That you can't pull yourself together here. I mean, come on. You cannot pull yourself together. When Jesus went to the cross, it is no mere coincidence that as he breathed his final breath, that darkness fell over the land. As he became sin for us. And when we trust in the work of the promised child Jesus, rather than in our own abilities and our own efforts, the promise is that God forgives that God forgives us of, of all of that sin, of all of that evil in our lives. And in turn, he puts his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to renew us from the inside out, to accept that true gift of Christmas. You have to admit that you're a sinner, that you're a sinner in need of grace. And when you do, the promise of Isaiah chapter 9 is that light will flash upon you and your way will be illuminated that you'll see where you're at and where you have to go. And as you walk that path, you will experience new life. That so often God speaks to us in a, in a whisper or in a gentle prompting. And it's very possible for some of you that, that God is inviting you to open this amazing gift this Christmas. If that's you and you're here today in that, we'd love to meet you there. We'd love to help you discern what that might look like in your life and help you unpack it. The easy way to start that conversation is to simply take out your phone, text the name of Jesus to this number on the screen, 720-513-1933. For those who are here who are believers, the really cool thing about this passage, why we love it so much, is because this is the truth of our lives. And so today, we have a gift that will help remind you 
of this amazing gift and truth that Jesus is the light of your life. That on your way out today, you can pick up one of these ornaments for you to celebrate on your tree as a reminder that Jesus is the light of the world. And here's our deal. That if you take one of these for your tree, we would just ask that you would pick one up, a second one up that you can give away to someone else. One of your family, your friends, a coworker, someone who needs to know that Jesus is the light of their life too. And invite them to what we're doing this December as we celebrate the birth that changed everything. The one who came into this world and with him light dawned. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, man, we read this famous passage and uh, Lord, we can't help but feel the gratefulness of who you are in our lives. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. God, I pray that that would reality would find its way deep into our lives. Through the truth that's being illuminated through your word, that we would know where we're at and where we're going. That as we walk that path, we would experience the life that you have for us. And Father, I pray for, for those here today, Lord, who have not yet experienced the flashing of light, the dawning of that light on their life. I pray in the quietness of this moment that you would whisper to their souls. And Lord, that they would take the step to find out how truly you look upon them, how much love you have for them, the heroic acts that you were able to come and to accomplish. That you walk with them in this world and that ultimately through you, they can experience the peace that is promised this December. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, the mighty gift of Christmas, amen. We come together as a church celebrating communion, the day that the light of the world went dark for a moment as his body was broken and as his blood was spilt. And in the darkness, we can be tempted to believe <laughs> that, that, was, that that was tragic. And in one hand, it was. But all these years later, we see that the breaking of the light's body, the pouring of Jesus' blood, was meant for us to be able to see and to experience true life. And so today, we eat knowing that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins. And through that forgiveness, as his blood spelt, we're given life. As we continue in our worship, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. You can make your way to the banner in-house that says prayer over there. Online, you can click the button. I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing together as children of light to the glorious God of light today.